everybody. Welcome back to the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. Cole, what is going on, man? Nothing much. Doing great. How about you? Can't complain. Yeah. Pretty Just... pumped that we're talking about maybe both of our favorite topic. You yeah. Think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Diabetes management. Correct. Pretty yeah. I would excited. definitely, uh, yeah, I would say top three at top least. Top three at least. Yeah. yeah. Probably favorite. I enjoy it. Yeah. Plus, I it's probably the thing that I know more trials and things like that with. Yeah. So it makes me feel smarter than I actually am. There is a lot of evidence out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's good for my ego. <laughs> so uh, we've talked about you know the diabetes guidelines and kind of compared and contrasted those. We've talked about some of the different treatment options. We talked about GLP ones in the past, uh, but today we're going to really focus on a GLP one specifically um, semaglutide and the trial that uh, looked at its cardiovascular, um, I guess, outcomes. So ended up being cardiovascular benefits, but they weren't really sure what they were going to find when they started it. Right. So we're actually going from macro level, which is what we usually do, and going a little more micro, which will grab bits and pieces of other diabetes concepts within that. But I think it's cool to take a trial and really flesh it out in this one drug in a class in a very... Complex as East state. Some think it's complex. Some think it's pretty easy. I think it just depends on how much detail you get into it, but yeah. to each his own. So we told you we were going to do it. You didn't believe us. Yeah. But here it is. Finally. Maybe. And we'll try and stay on task. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the, the point of, he mentioned cardiovascular outcomes, cardiovascular safety, um, a little background on these types of trials that you see a lot in diabetes. Um, and of course, you see similar types of safety trials in chronic disease states like heart failure, hypertension, that sort of thing. But back in 2007, the FDA said, hey, anyone who wants to make a new diabetes drug and even some established diabetes drugs, if you want to get our, you know, official heart seal of approval, you're going to have to perform these cardiovascular safety trials. And so that's what they started doing. And it just so happens that a few of them in their secondary analysis were like, hey, this isn't just safe compared to placebo this is actually better than placebo as far as reducing cardiovascular events. So sustained six is one of those. Yes. So we've been through this before, but Mm -hmm. just as a refresher, let's kind of talk about GOP ones real quick. You can never have too many GOP ones. You can't have too much of it. That's actually the bumper sticker on my car. (laughs) You can never have too many GOP ones. All right. So mechanism of action. Um, First and foremost, obviously, we have GLP-1 receptors kind of located in various places in the body. Um, so the main one we think about with a uh, when we're treating with uh, especially type 2 diabetes uh, in the um, pancreas, when GLP-1 binds, it's going to cause beta cells to start producing insulin and um, hopefully drive that blood sugar down and where it's out of the blood and where it's supposed to be inside the cells. So... You, the first thing to kind of think about is it's not like a sulfonylurea where it just will bind and automatically start um, pumping out insulin. Exactly. Um, you know, causing hypoglycemia if the person tend, you know doesn't eat or whatever. Uh, but this one actually will only start working whenever the patient consumes carbs. So that's one really good benefit. We have less likelihood of having uh, hypoglycemia typically unless we're using it with, you know, insulins or something like that. But... Um, you know, the first step, it's going to uh, release that insulin, and so the sugar, the glucose that's in the blood will then be transported inside the cells um, to be used for energy. Right. Um, 
fun fact, just so you guys all remember your early biochem days. But um, So much fun. Yeah. So whenever the glucose is transported into the cell, um, the first step of glycolysis, if you remember, is hexokinase converts it to six or um, glucose 6-phosphate. Um, and the reason for that is when you add that phosphate group, um, it is not unable to leave back out of the cell again. So it's kind of trapped, and then it continues on its way to uh, all the way to pyruvate and then into the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain, and the rest is history. Lots all of that ATP. good stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not just back to medchem. That's back to you know, ninth grade biology right there. Whoa, that, was, that was at least a 10th grade level. Yeah, I mean, we're going micro. Okay. We said we would, and we're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> Man, we're honest. But yeah, GLP-1, generally, it's glucagon-like, peptide-1, um, but it's one of the incretin, or as my southern friends like to say, incretin hormones. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> it's incretin. <laughs> right. <laughs> plays, a, plays a large part in um, the that cycle that he's talking about and diabetes in general. So that's why we give it. And, you know, at the same time, you know, we have this beta cell production of insulin. Uh, we also are, are going to suppress glucagon production. So it's going to affect the alpha cells, and they're not able to, to produce glucagon. Um, so when you are stopping glucagon production, you are going to stop things like gluconeogenesis. You're going to stop glucogenolysis. Uh, and so the patient's not going to be producing even more uh, glucose to be released. So also another factor is that glucagon inhibition. They're kind of working simultaneously. Right. And so that's its primary mechanism of uh, decreasing sugar. It has a couple of other things that it does primarily uh, for weight loss. So that's another positive that we talked about with GLP-1s, whereas sulfonylureas, insulins, and others may cause weight gain. You can actually see weight loss with GLP-1s. One, they slow gastric emptying. And so that kind of tells you what kind of side effects they're going to have maybe similar to a mild gastroparesis picture because you're basically inducing gastroparesis through that, but it does help with weight loss. Uh, and then they're also going to promote satiety by acting on the hypothalamus. So increase that feeling of fullness. So you basically won't eat as much, uh, which is going to promote weight loss overall. I think, I think in the hypothalamus, they decrease the firing of those pro-opioid melanocortin neurons. There you go. I memorized that word a long time ago, and for whatever reason, it's always stuck in my brain. There I you think go. that's... Now everybody gets to remember it. Yeah. It's it's fun to say. Pro-opioid melanocortin. Mm-hmm. I like that. Neurons. Yeah, me too. Makes cool. you sound, again, smarter than yeah, you really smarter are. Smarter than you really are. <laughs> it's but perfect. I, sh- I should mention some of the side effects being nausea, especially, and some vomiting, potentially. It can be significant and happens in a lot of patients, but it's transient. So if they can push through really that first week or so of being on these medications, um, semaglutide being one, it should go away over time. So if the patients aren't warned about that up front, they're probably going to stop using the medication. Yeah, and especially if you have a patient that is, I've seen this too, where the patient is being started on two meds at once. They're put on metformin immediate release and then also on GLP-1, so... Yeah, some definitely. It's going to be tough on the tummy. Some some GI discomfort. Oh, yeah. So uh, that being said, we're talking about semaglutide, brand name Ozempic, some other ones being uh, Victoza, which is loraglutide, Bidurion, which is exenatide, and there's also Bieta, which is the immediate release, and then Lixazenatide, which, what's the brand name of Lixazenatide? Adlixin. Adlixin, yeah. Also Trilicity, Dilaglutide. So those are some of the big GLP ones that you'll think of. I think there's a couple other ones too, but... Those are kind of the main ones. Uh, um, Tanzium, albiglutide is. Um, I think there's a few hanging around still, but I think by July they'll be completely gone from existence. They're fading fast. Yeah. 
yeah. fading fast. If only they had made a better pen device that didn't didn't need you to leave it in a jar for. It's a little better minutes. than having to hit it on your hand ninety times, like yeah. by Durian has well, you do. Well, by Durian just redid their. I was pen. gonna say, yeah. yeah, didn't they? So they're we kind need, of getting rid of that. We need to call them and get them to send us one. Actually, we yeah. do a video on that. We can demonstrate. Yeah, because I haven't actually seen one yet. So there's, I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about it. No smacking against the hand. I think it's, yeah, it's supposed to be a lot easier to reconstitute. Good. I don't, I, don't, I didn't look at it much just because I don't like the actual drug itself as far right. as its efficacy. So right. I didn't spend too much time looking at it. But yeah, it is, it is definitely better supposedly. Yeah. But cool. it's more expensive too. Yes. So some insurance companies will pay for the old pen where you got to shake it eighty times. And yes. Not the new one. So GLP ones, which I'm sure we'll mention as we go throughout are unfortunately expensive medications even though we really like them second line in diabetes past metformin if you can't if they can be used but frequently they cannot uh, a lot of times if patients don't have insurance or it's not covered you're going to have to go to something like SGLT2 even uh, sulfonylurea and maybe even something like Actos depending on their financial status so that is the world we live in yep I mean it's definitely something to consider that I think that uh a lot of people maybe don't. When we're talking about all these new meds and this, that, and the other, uh, it's like, well, who, you know, that's all great and it's great to know the trials, but if they can't afford it, well, what good is it? Right. We preach in a vacuum up here, so everything's ideal world. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer my vacuum. <laughs> Keeps things clean. It does. All right. So, you know, did, we were mentioning like some of the different trials that uh, had looked at cardiovascular events. Semaglutide mm-hmm. uh, is one of the most recent ones. Yes. Um, you know, and it's also, you know, before semaglutide was on the market, we had Victoza was the market leader. So that was the best A1C lowering, the best weight loss. And, you know, all the other ones have been compared head to head, which is really weird because this is like one of the only classes that actually did that. Like yeah. they were just like, oh, yeah, we can beat Victoza. SGLT2s won't do it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly, because they they know what will happen. Yeah, and uh, you know they they've actually compared head to head, which you just don't see very often. And so you know they by doing this, they've you know unfortunately kind of shown what uh, which one really is truly the market leader. And so you know the Baeta was definitely you know that was kind of out for a while now. I mean it's still around every once in a while you see it, but most people aren't. It's twice a day. That's the one twice a day. Yeah, yeah. and it's got um, it's inferior A one C lowering to Victoza, so I don't really know why you'd want to use that one. Um, now, yeah, and now uh, it's you know older brother the once weekly version of it. Um, ex- the extended release Exenatide is called Bidurion, like we were just talking about. Um, that one was also compared to uh, Victoza. I believe they looked at it in the duration six trial. Um, and that one um, also did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority, so not good. And then same thing happened with Tanzium, which was also once weekly. Same thing happened with Atlixin. And then Trulicity came along and finally met the criteria for non-inferiority. So that, for a long time, was kind of like my go-tos. Um, you've heard me talk about Trulicity and Victoza, like my flash briefings and stuff like that. So and Trulicity is once weekly. Yeah, and so I've been, I've been preaching about those for a while, but... Unfortunately for Trulicity, Nova Nordisk does it again and brings out Ozempic uh, semaglutide. And that one has uh, already been shown to be more effective than Trulicity as far as A1C lowering. I think weight loss as well. And now, thanks to the Sustained 6 trial, we have cardiovascular safety data with it. Whereas Trulicity's 
Um, it will be out probably this July. It's going to be called the, it's called the Rewind Trial, but yep. it's not currently done. Um, we're thinking July. Yeah, and on that same coin, there's an oral semaglutide in the works. So the first oral GLP-1, those trials are the Pioneer Series trials, and they're comparing oral semaglutide to liraglutide. They're doing, I think that's Pioneer 4. Pioneer 6, I'm pretty sure, is oral semaglutide versus placebo, cardiovascular safety. So that one will be pretty interesting and uh, definitely novel in this class of drugs. As far as some other cardiovascular safety trials that they've done with other diabetes medications that are important, probably the biggest one is the Impareg trial with Impagliflozin, uh, Jardians, and then they also had the Canvas trial with Invokana. We may reference why Impareg kind of turned out a little bit better than Canvas, but either way, those are kind of the three that are positive as far as cardiovascular safety goes. They also did some with DPP-4s, which, you know, we don't really love DPP-4s either way, but they did have the TECOS trial with Genuvia, um, not positive results as far as cardiovascular benefit goes, and then glimepuride versus linagliptin. They did a trial comparing those two as far as cardiovascular safety. Also, saxagliptin, which is on Gliza. They had the saver Timmy 53 trial, which was didn't show benefit versus placebo with and showed a harm with heart failure yeah harm and so on is contraindicated in heart failure yep so yeah on is the worst <laughs> um the worst the worst literally <laughs> so you know the other thing to consider is since we're on this um you know should we give a GLP-1 and a DPP-4. Um, we've probably covered this before. Um, I think we we, brief, we mentioned it before, but yeah. You know, there's not really any good data that shows that those two working together are any benefit. Um, and in theory, they're on the exact same pathway. So GLP-1s, um, the, the receptor agonists like we have our synthetic GLP-1s, those are made to be resistant to your natural um, dipeptidylpeptidase 4 enzyme. And so you don't really need an inhibitor on top of that. Um, they're already going to resist it themselves. And then if, if you're giving a DPP-4 inhibitor, then you don't also then need a GLP-1 that's a synthetic version because now your natural GLP-1 can hang around longer. And you're really just kind of compounding side effects. You're not really helping uh, the patient achieve a lower A1C or anything like that. So um, not typically used together. There was a study... Uh, an older one that used Baeta with Genuvia. Um, it's the only one I've ever seen, and it's kind of, it's, I mean, nothing I'm a, a fan of and definitely won't won't quote it because it's not a, uh, not evidence that I've really looked too much into. Yeah, DPP-4s are basically wimpy GLP-1s. Yeah. So you think, you know, you're thinking about, you know, 0.75 to 1 full percentage point A1C lowering. Um, versus only like a half, if that, yeah, with DPP-4s. Yeah, and you and can... that's being generous. And GLP-1s, I think it depends also on how uncontrolled they are. If they're more uncontrolled, you could potentially see a more significant A1C benefit. But yeah, generally you're thinking around one or so as far as A1C reduction goes. And originally I'd say, well, at least DPP-4s are oral, so they just are scared to death of needles and won't take one. But semaglutide's taking care of that. Yep. So I don't know when it's actually going to be out. When it does, I'm sure it'll be a game changer. Yeah, it'll be pretty interesting. So that was a long introduction to get into the Sustain 6 trial. but So interesting and good. I know, because we're pretty awesome. <laughs> but before we hop into it, I mentioned nausea, vomiting is a potential side effect. Also, there's some other rare ones like pancreatitis. So you want to be cautious, if not you know, avoid it. GLP-1s in patients with a history of pancreatitis. Also, it should be avoided in 
patients with a history of thyroid C-cell tumors, and it's very low risk for hypoglycemia, but because all of these at this point are injections, there will probably be injection site reactions more with some than others, like Bidurion's notorious for pretty significant injection site reactions. Trulicity is pretty mild as far as that goes. So there, there are very, there is variability, but they can all have some. Yeah, and also um, not just thyroid cancer, but um, if you have a history of multiple endocrine neoplasia type two, um, it's also contraindicated. I don't know if you, I didn't think. No, you I didn't say okay. that. Yeah, got to get those random cancers in there. Yeah, just in case, because it's on the commercial too. So it it's got to be important. Yeah, got to be important. <laughs> trying to sell myself to the uh, commercial agency. <laughs> What is it, the FTC that regulates those? I don't think it's the FDA. No. Nah. Or maybe it is the FDA. I don't I know. Remember. FTC does something with advertising, but. That class we took in pharmacy school, the teacher would be very upset. Yeah, well, that whole, <laughs> law, we that whole law class that I'm going to have to know in a couple months yeah. when I take that whole law exam thing. Oof, it's yeah, rough. I know. There's that. So Cole's got some reviewing to do. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a lawyer, man. <laughs> yeah, law's, law's rough. Yeah, apparently PharmD, um, people who have their PharmD and their law degree do pretty well. Apparently there's some interesting things you can do. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Got to be a special kind of person to want to do both those schools. But. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I get the PharmD one. That makes <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> but I can get my head around that one. But right. the, the JD, like being a little man, have, that's a whole different ball game it's with all stuff. those papers and just analytical thinking, I guess. And uh, just in a very, non-medical way <laughs> i complain about the naplex pass rates like dropping below the 90s into the 80s and whatnot but i think the the bar pass rates are just abysmal i can't remember exactly but i just want to say it's like 50 percent or below or 60 percent or below or something but pretty bad so and that's not to say that law students aren't intelligent it's to say that's just a, a comment on how difficult the bar exam is so well, that one guy passed it in like two weeks <laughs> remember from just catch me if you can Oh, the um, yeah, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's his when name. Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> passed, passed the bar in two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure that's his name. <laughs> With Tom Hanks, that's yeah. a good movie. You know that guy lives on Daniel Island, supposedly. Who? The guy. Oh, the real guy. No, I've totally heard that. Yeah. Did we talk about this? I have no idea. I talked about this with somebody. No, I know exactly who it was. Never mind. It was on this past rotation. And apparently, yeah, he he got out of jail because he wasn't in jail his whole life, and he lives in Charleston. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be a super nice guy too. Yeah. So, and apparently a genius. Oh, apparently. Let's get him on the podcast. Yeah, there you go. I bet you I can do that. I can learn how to forge some checks. I don't even, I just we want to talk to him. Yeah, we don't need to do the fortune checks. <laughs> yeah, let's, we're not doing that, Mom. You know, I hear podcasts where people like talk about movies that are not obscure, but just like, you know, not recent. And I'm like, how do they know about all those movies? But you happen to bring up a movie where I actually knew two of the main characters. So Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. Boom. Boom. Nailed it. Yeah. We should start a movie podcast also. There you go. And it'll and it would take off so much faster than our <laughs> medical one. Oh, oh man. man. Yeah. Anyways, sorry guys. All right. So uh major um or I guess let's start with uh we went through some of the exclusion criteria. Um somewhat. Let's go through like the actual inclusion criteria first. Sure. Is that cool? Yeah. Um so obviously type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Just type one you had you were excluded. Um, it had to have an A1C of greater than seven. Mm-hmm. Had to be greater than fifty, um, and they had to also meet a certain uh, one of the criteria that were listed, um, which could have been uh, established cardiovascular disease, um, and that could have been either cerebrovascular, peripheral vascular. Um, yeah, it could have been previous CV events. 
Um, they also heart failure, um, class two and three. Um, or CKD greater than or equal to stage three. Mm-hmm. So you'd have one of those criteria. So that's if you're over 50. Over 50. Yeah. Or you could be over 60, and you had to have one of this new criteria list, which was persistent microalbuminuria or proteinuria, um, or you had to have a um, left ventricular hypertrophy uh, or left ventricle systolic or diastolic dysfunction. And then the other one was a... Ankle brachial pressure index of less than 0.9. Yeah, and so there's a lot of pros and cons to these types of inclusion criteria. So obviously, some patients are going to have established cardiovascular disease, so they don't have an ASCVD risk anymore because they have clinical ASCVD. And then there's other patients who are just high risk, so CKD, heart failure, and those sorts of things, age. Um, so they're, they're, people will kind of spit at that and say, well, we don't know if it's really good secondary prevention data or we don't know if it's really good primary prevention data it's hard to say and yeah it is hard to say so you know they do that so that you can hopefully extrapolate it into multiple patient populations so it's more generalizable but at the same time yeah that can that can make it a little bit confusing as to whether it fits with your patient or not so to that just a few baseline characteristics going along with what you mentioned One, um, the average age was about 64, and it was mostly white and mostly male. Male is about 63%, white about 84%. And most of these patients were on either metformin or sulfonylurea for the most part, or they could have been on insulin. So that goes to some of the exclusion criteria, only on basal or premixed insulin, not on uh, prandial insulin. Average A1C, even though it had to be above 7, was around 8.7, and these patients had had diabetes for about 15 years. So it's really important to look at these trials and see, does it really fit my patient when you're considering if they're really going to get this cardiovascular benefit? Because it is easy to say, hey, semaglutide, cardiovascular benefit, just give it to everybody, which, you know, the patient may see benefit even if they don't fit exactly into these criteria, but you can't say that based on this trial, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of the uh, things that people will kind of say is their criticism is, you know, you include these studies where, uh, or include these patients rather, that are so sick that we can't then just say, oh, well, like you said, everyone gets it then. Because there's been no way, we have to do the trial again with healthy patients and prove it out, but no one's going to pay for that. Right. Because it probably wouldn't prove out. Right. And we said CKD greater than stage three, but there were actually um some patients so i guess actually greater than stage three would mean they had pretty poor kidneys mm-hmm. right there was one patient with or i guess 0.5 percent of patients which i guess would have been a few more than one with a creatinine clearance less than 15 so some people in pretty much severe ckd only about 30 percent of them had quote-unquote normal gfrs i guess that's for their age group so they they really went ahead and said hey bring in some patients with renal dysfunction and let's see if it works because other trials sometimes didn't do that because they were a little concerned what might happen so we'll get into that with the results too yeah they really bring them in if worst case scenario we'll get them some hemodialysis there you go (laughs) the risk they were willing to take (laughs) so um you know what were the actual interventions right so it was either the patients on placebo and obviously it has to be some type of placebo injection or the patient's going to know they're on a placebo or they were randomized to uh, semaglutide 0.5 milligrams once a week or one milligram once a week. And that was kind of the design. 
it was in a whole bunch of countries so it was multinational at over 200 sites median follow-up was about two years or so and the primary outcome they're looking at which is pretty consistent throughout all these cardiovascular safety trials it's always a composite of cardiovascular mortality non-fatal mi and non-fatal stroke is always the three that they look at yeah it's convenient that they like to put them all together. Yes. So that um, they can make it look better or not really worse. They can basically just make it look, look basically better. Basically just hides the fact that it's not that great. Right. Uh, well, yeah, we'll talk about that too. And it was about 3,300 patients. So not, not a small trial by any means. So, so you know, primary outcome, uh, like Cole said, the cardiovascular mortality plus non-fatal MI plus non-fatal stroke. It's a composite, yeah. Um, so that primary composite was... Uh, in fact, superior um, in regards to semaglutide. Semaglutide showed superiority, uh, so you know we had less likelihood of having one of those cardiovascular events, and so we can actually say that it does have benefit. Versus, right. you, you know, you'll see these trials where, uh, like um, Adlixin, for instance, they they didn't get a difference; it was just not inferior to placebo. So instead of being like, oh shoot we don't have any cardiovascular benefit. Mm-hmm. They spun it in such a positive glass mm-hmm. half full way. We're not what, worse than placebo. Yeah. Well, guess what guys, we don't have any risk of cardiovascular disease. So go ahead and take it all you want. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. Yeah. And which ultimately that was all the FDA was asking. They just wanted you to be able to say, this isn't going to harm you mm-hmm. like Actos or the thiazolidinediones or however you pronounce those. Um, they can <laughs> increase your risk for heart failure, especially because of all of the, edema in fluid retention so they wanted you to be able to say mine is no worse than placebo and it's not going to cause cardiovascular harm we're just seeing that some drugs actually show benefit whether it's intrinsic with the drug or it's because they you know prevent disease progression over a period of time who knows either way some of them do and unfortunately even though it did show superiority in that composite it wasn't perfect as far as those three go like we were alluding to and the secondary outcomes they kind of break those three down into their individual uh, facets non-fatal mi was not significant on its own cardiovascular mortality was also not significant on its own so really it was non-fatal stroke that was driving that um, trio composite there Uh, which is kind of similar to what we saw with liraglutide yes so that that is kind of I think standard for some of these. Liraglutide may have had all-cause mortality by itself as well, if I remember correctly. You know what? Um, Keep going and I can look. But, uh, yeah, the stroke was actually pushing that. So, you know, it's it's great to say that we have, you know, we can, we can reduce cardiovascular events, but more accurately we would say it can reduce the chances of the person having a non-fatal stroke. Right. So, you know, you got to be careful with the wording and taking what they say in their composite is kind of how you present the data. Um, you know, the other, other things that were significant, um, we saw a uh, difference in revascularization. Um, we also saw a difference in retinopathy complications. And then um, new or... Which was a negative difference. Right. So it was, there were more retinopathy complications in the treatment group right? yes yeah yes that's right. right yeah yeah, that's my bad so yes they were different but it was in favor of placebo right <laughs> which um, is i think the only real negative outcome other than the nausea vomiting type gi side effects right and you know the other thing to consider obviously we have the statistics there to kind of present the picture of whether or not something is statistically significant but when we think of things like you know non-fatal stroke for instance 
you know, the instant the incidence rate of having a non-fail stroke in the treatment group was 1.6, and then not in the treatment group, or the placebo group rather, was 2.7. So you're not talking about these massive differences. You know, it's enough to where it can make a difference when you do the statistics based on, you know, those two numbers. But it, it's not something that, when you actually think about it in clinical practice, if for whatever reason this person couldn't be on this drug, you're not talking about. It's not just, the end of the world. Massive life-changing thing. Right. And, you know, we, we didn't, unfortunately, but we could calculate the number needed to treat and it would give you a better idea, which I think with that, it would have a pretty reasonable number needed to treat. But to give you an idea, so the leader trial with liraglutide, it did have cardiovascular mortality benefit on its own with a number needed to treat of 77. So that's a leader trial, if I didn't say that already. All-cause mortality, uh, they did show benefit with a number needed to treat of 71. So that's that's pretty good. Impareg with empagliflozin also showed benefits in all-cause mortality with an even lower needed to tr- number needed to treat of 38 and cardiovascular mortality benefit number needed to treat of 45. So both of those are pretty good. So if you just compared those directly to semaglutide where all-cause mortality wasn't statistically significant, cardiovascular mortality wasn't statistically significant, you know, you you also have to go back and say, okay, well, what were these patient populations? The patient populations, there's a lot of differences. So there's a lot of heterogeneity between these trials, even though they seem very similar. So you got to take take all this with a grain of salt, but still there are positive things that we're seeing from this trial. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it looks like the, the as far as the primary composite, which again, remember, was driven by non-fatal stroke, um, the number needed to treat was 44 for the primary composite. For pretty good. Time. So it's not bad. So that's for all three together, mm-hmm. which is where, you know, the, the driven by non-fatal stroke, but still, that's not bad. So 44 patients, you know, we're like, oh, non-fatal stroke. Well, that's not mortality. Well, you got to consider patients' um, standard of living mm-hmm. and their quality of life going forward. And non-fatal strokes can have a significant impact on a patient, especially a patient with diabetes, quality of life long-term and complications down the road, you know, it will non-fatal stroke, even though that's not immediate mortality long-term, are you extending their life? Probably so other things that you have to consider. Absolutely. I've noticed that I actually just throw in some random phase or phrase when I don't yeah. know what I'm supposed to say. I just noticed I did it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or I say, yep. Yep. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm like little John over here. <laughs> okay. You remember him? God, what happened that to him? That guy? Oh, yeah. We're buds. Yeah. That's my childhood. <laughs> oh, jeez. Anyways, um, way off topic again. <laughs> People who told us we talk too much about nonsense are going to be very upset. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, well, guess what? We're going to talk about more nonsense. Yeah. Have I mentioned RX, T-Rex, <laughs> whatever his name is? T-Rex, RX. Yeah, that guy. I don't know. He's crazy. Yeah. He's pretty cool. Yeah. Can't wait to order my next one. Yeah? Yeah, I don't know what's going to be yet. Don't know. No Can't teaser decide. or anything? I saw a guy that's like riding, he's an astronaut, and he's like riding these balloons, but the balloons are really the moon. He's like, what? Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't I, I don't get it, but like, it's, uh, <laughs> I guess uh, it looks pretty cool though. So, yeah. whatever. And it, it's a good contrast from the, like it's like all dark as, you know, space where the moon is. And uh, it looks good. It would look good against that wall, so I'd probably yeah, order that out. Yeah, we'll just have to figure out how to organize them so 
Well, yeah. It looks good back there and everything. Plus, I shared them out of my Instagram profile, and then they gave me a couple double thumbs up there emoji. You go. My, yeah, so you can say things are getting pretty serious between <laughs> us now. Oh, gosh. Oh, geez. Where were we? Okay. Results. Yeah. Yeah. I, we were talking, we just finished results, didn't we? Yeah. So, Ish. safety. We talked about the nodge vomiting. We talked about other concerns. The pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis, which I think is a little bit overblown with the GLP 1s was you know fleshed out in this trial a little bit placebo group actually had a higher incidence of acute pancreatitis so <laughs> we're really not too concerned unless Oops. you see a patient's trigs upwards of 500 or they have a history of it that's really where you're thinking okay might not glp1 might not be the best option for them right now right um i thought that was interesting that hypoglycemia was like almost the same in both groups yep. compared to placebo yeah and that goes to what the mechanism that you were talking about before we're really this and metformin were not really concerned about hypoglycemia, and that is huge, especially in the elderly population. Yep, and and it's also good too because if you have a patient that is, you know, having to check their blood sugar, obviously, then you know it's you know they're they're more controlled. They're not on insulin. Then you can still only check like once a day, sometimes even like once every other day, um, because you're not having to check preprandial or or post or the two hours after the meal postprandial. Uh, because you know realistically we're not really worried too much about hypoglycemia exactly and if you find out that uh, your blood sugar is a little bit high after a meal and you're on metformin and a glp1 once weekly what are you going to do right. about it anyway right Can't so unless you metformin. just unless you just want a reference point but really yeah so if they're on basal insulin also then really it's just fasting that you got to focus on at that mm-hmm. point I think the only time that I that I go against that is if if they're they're saying they're taking the medications and they're still uncontrolled because I'll get random blood sugar readings to figure out where they're kind of losing their way as far as the diet. Right. That's yeah. that's where you would use it. So I do want to specify because I'm sure there's someone here who does diabetes education and they're like just losing their mind. <laughs> that's the wrong thing to say. Right. Not saying the patients don't need to check their blood pressure. Yes. I mean their blood sugar, but not like they would have to with. Uh, post or with preprandial glucose that being said i have seen patients who are on basal insulin bolus insulin and they're on a glp1 which i think is interesting uh, I, the idea is to decrease the insulin requirements because we know long-term uh, insulin is going to cause increased weight gain high risk for hypoglycemia maybe even some cardiovascular issues i think there are some cardiovascular safety trials out there for insulin uh, but there is still that potential uh, so you know or- origin was one of them origin yeah that was definitely one of them uh, so that's something to consider and in that case yes that you you would want to have a pretty good idea of what their post are looking like if their fastings are definitely under control yeah I, my um I, I knew a guy who he, he was only on he was well controlled his a1c was like probably lower than I would want to see it. And he, he, uh, he'd gone to go with like a complete unrelated, uh, surgery is like a, you know, in and out surgery type of thing. And, um, the anesthesiologist was asking him how often he checked. I don't know why he was doing, I guess we was just talking small talk with him, but asked him how often he checks his blood sugar. And, uh, he said, uh, just the once a day, sometimes once every other day. And they was like, no, man, you gotta be checking it four times a day, five times a day. And, uh, he called me and, and you know, it's, he's like, is this true? Like, why do I have to, why would I? It's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with five times a day right. readings? Like, your A1C is perfect, probably too low. I think you're okay. I think that guy's just 
confused. Yeah, and that's something you have to consider because I, I think that some people have the misconception that all patients with diabetes need to be checking every morning fasting and then after every meal every day. But if a patient's well controlled, they may not need that. And you have to consider the burden that that's going to put on them. So mm-hmm. they're already having to in- potentially inject themselves every day, at least take medications every day, which reminds them that they have diabetes. If they have to stick a lancet in their finger and check their blood sugar before, or after, or fasting, whatever, every day, the more times they do that, the more they're reminded. And, you know, in these chronic disease states, depression is an issue that you're going to have to deal with, or at least the patients are going to have to deal with, and you'll have to be aware of when you're treating them. So that can just add to that because they already have a significant burden with the diabetes in general. For sure. For sure. I think See? that's another one. Yeah. Is, yeah. Listen, listen, don't call me out of my... <laughs> you just, pointed it out. Now I'm all focused because, on Just it. because I need filler words to make myself sound... Oh, if we counted the ums, we probably shouldn't point that out to people. Then all they'll be able to focus on is us saying um, um, um all the time. No, they'll get over it. Um, we'll see. Maybe not. <laughs> So, yeah, so that is sustain six. Mm-hmm. So hypothetical situation. We yes. got the guy, some random person has diabetes type two, mm-hmm. and they are on a, they're on metformin max dose, and they're on a GLP-1, and let's say they have cardiovascular, so ASTVD, and um, they're not on a statin. What are we going with? I know this is not related, but... Let's just, whatever. We're making stuff up now. I think I may have blanked halfway through that, so you tell me okay. what we're going with. So we're going. So <laughs> a couple, couple ways to think about it. One, um, we know that a statin can help patients um, specifically with diabetes because of the CARDS trial, um, which uh, looked at uh, atorvastatin 10. Um, and then from there, they looked at, especially patients with secondary prevention, they looked at patients that were taking 80 milligrams versus 10 milligrams in the TNT trial. And um, the 80 milligrams was uh, was better and reduced secondary events. So it's one of those things that uh, I would potentially go all the way up to an 80 milligram dose of atorvastatin for this person if they weren't on a statin, had ASCVD. Um, I've always found that it's easier to tell the person you're cutting their dose in half if they start talking about myopathies or um, myalgias or anything like that. And then you can kind of say, okay, well, you know what, we're cutting it in half. Whereas if you are have them at 40 they're tolerating it, and you say okay now i'm doubling the dose i think i feel like yeah psychologically that just sounds worse no i agree um i think we actually referenced this a little bit back in the stroke podcast um or the yeah the post stroke stroke podcast but that's a good trial to say yeah let's just go straight to 80 because a lot of clinicians prescribers will want to kind of start low and go slow but that's one of those where post stroke it's okay just to pop them right with that 80 milligram dose it showed benefit and then if they have symptoms you can just start to back off from there which again i'll say i'm sure i said in the last one but the symptoms are a lot less frequent than people think right so don't freak out about it and and also to just to kind of add on there it's ischemic stroke i don't know if i heard you say ischemic no i just said um, post-stroke but yeah so ischemic stroke specifically um hemorrhagic stroke actually was uh not didn't get the same benefit as ischemic. So right. person has ischemic stroke, that's when you hit them with that atorvastatin 80 milligrams per the sparkle trial. There you go. Cool. So yeah, just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. That just goes, time waster goes to the point that no cardiovascular events are frequently what kills these patients. If it's not an infection or a you know foot infection, something of that sort, or 
a fall, a hip fracture from a hypoglycemic event, a lot of times it's something cardiovascular. So anything we can do to decrease that is important. Did we talk about the new uh, ADA updates where they change their recommendations if the patient has ASCVD? I think we did a whole podcast on it. I think we, yeah. Or was that just hypertension? I think we did hypertension. Okay, no, yeah. Oh no, no, no. Sorry, we did we did hypertension on the ACCHA guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the ADA guidelines. So you know we used to just say obviously everyone starts with metformin if you're a type two, and then from there, uh, unless you had an A1C of you know nine, ten, you know up there, that's when they would move to insulin. But if not, if let's say it was an eight, um, then they would basically just say pick whatever agent you want to use second class, and they list it off. You know GLP ones. Uh, sulfonylureas, DPP-4 inhibitors, um, TZDs, you know, whatever. And so you pick which one you wanted to go and just pick one at random, and then you would work your way down the list from there. So one of the updates for 2018 was whenever uh, a patient is looking for a second-line agent, so they're already on metformin, they need a second-line agent, you assess whether or not that patient has ASCVD currently. Um, if they do... Um, and I think, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the uh, if the risk also... If they have a certain risk, yeah. 7.5 or 10, it's one of those two. I one can't remember. Um, but if it's that, then they will use an evidence-based uh, treatment option. And that's the three that they mentioned specifically is Victoza from the LEADER trial, uh, Jardiance from Emperor Outcomes, and then um, Invocana from Canvas. Canvas trial, yeah. And now, it seems, they don't put it in there, but it would seem that... Ozempic would be a yeah. reasonable option in that case too. So we'll see. They may update it in two thousand beginning very beginning of two thousand nineteen yeah. or December or something, but we'll see. Um definitely curious how that plays out. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I cannot wait for the the, the oral version. Pretty pumped. That's gonna be it's gonna be pricey. Yeah, it is. And also in type ones too. There's been some minor studies looking at GLP ones in type ones. Um, that have showed a little bit of benefit. So they're small, and I don't know if it's actually going to show anything in yeah. the long run. But They gave that a shot with Metform, and it doesn't seem like people are wanting to catch yeah. on either. So funny story. Mm-hmm. I uh, When I first got licensed, I was working with the diabetes uh, patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't quite established uh, my knowledge. You know, I was still in the learning phase, still you know trying to build my knowledge as I was going kind of in the middle of it. And... I had a patient that was a type one and he was on, uh, Unglaza. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, which I thought was strange, but me being new at this and thinking that I'm going to spit some evidence-based medicine, then I was like, well, let's not do Unglaza. Let's switch him to a GLP one because true and I had the whole thing mm-hmm. listed out and the prescriber just like cracked up laughing <laughs> in my face and basically was like, yeah, that's for type twos. You can't use that in a type one. Uh, and I was so like thrown off because I didn't, I was so new at this. I didn't really know what to say. Um, and now I've been like, oh, you already have them on a DPP-4. I was going to say, why are they on a DPP-4? Yeah. But You must be kind of stupid. <laughs> and so, no, I wouldn't say no, that. No, we, we, lo- we love other professions. Yeah. We don't say things like no. that. No. <laughs> Unless we're in a really bad mood. <laughs> but no, they, uh, you know, it's now I would be able to be like, well, what are you talking about? I'm just trying to help him out. If you're going to try experiments on him, let's at least give him a good experiment. Um, but yeah, at the time I was like, Oh, I'm so stupid. <laughs> and then when I got home, I was like, no, DPP four is What was I thinking? I totally blew my opportunity to come back. Oh, so, and it's haunted me ever since. <laughs> Clearly. No, yeah, but it was good. Funny. It was a good learning, uh, you know, opportunity for me to be like, okay, 
you get super, super serious about constantly trying to learn because that stuff, it didn't come, that that fact didn't come to the surface right away and I was, I was really mad at myself. Yeah. So it's a good life lesson. It happens. It happens to the best of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy had him on a DPP-4. So. I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> At least mine was out of his face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, and on Glyza of all of them. Yeah, I know. What a, I know. What a mistake. I know. That was so unevidence-based. <laughs> <laughs> we love physicians. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> Glad I don't want your job at all. It is. No, it's, it's a crazy tough job. Yeah. I was joking with my students that... They they mentioned something about the anatomy. I was like, I, I don't know. I just know the shoulder because that's where we stick the needle. <laughs> right. That's the only thing. The I deltoid. Think. We got the, that one. The shoulder region. Right. And it's connected to the sh- upper shoulder. And that's it. That's the only anatomy I need to know. I was like, don't ask me that. <laughs> ask me drugs. <laughs> that's what you guys are for. That's why I call you guys and you guys tell me about the diagnosis. I don't, oh, I don't know gross anatomy. I took baby anatomy in like undergrad. That's it. As did I. I'm not really sure that the guy was telling me the right things. Yeah, they pronounce stuff like duodenum and whatnot. What's up with that? I don't know. Undergrad. <laughs> I know. So silly. <laughs> Anyways. Cool. What else? Anything else we need to discuss before we get out of here? That's all I got for that trial. I think that was cool. We might do more of these every once in a while where we start micro, grab a trial, and then kind of branch out from there and see what else we can make up as we go along. Yes, sounds good to me. Um, also, uh, I think we, we may try to, we haven't discussed this, this is just me thinking. But, um, <laughs> I love it when we do that yeah. in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This is us planning. This is how it, this is how it goes. <laughs> um, you know, I think we should probably try to do like another patient case. It combines a few different disease states. Let's try to knock through one of those and put the case itself on the website. And it may be, just maybe. There may be like an Alexa skill that helps you mm. learn these trials. Teaser. Coming soon. Whoa. And by soon. Soon is a relative word. <laughs> and by <laughs> soon, we mean we have no idea, but we're trying real hard. It'll be interesting. No, I think it'll be, I think it'll be really good. Yeah. I think it's going to be cool. No, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm going to dominate. Yeah. So you may just be able to say, Alexa, tell me about the sustained six trial. Mm-hmm. And then within the next two to three minutes. You have one of our majestic voices coming across Alexa. And you know everything you need to know. Or at least one minute worth. Or at least one minute's <laughs> worth. You can look up the rest. And then you can look up the rest by yourself. Yeah. I'm not going to do everything for you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's probably going to be coming soon. Cool. Um, also, for those of you who live in Charleston, I'm going to do a selfless plug Ooh, here. we're plugging. Yeah. This is a, a, an event that is going to be for continuing education for physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, and PharmDs. Um, it's going to be on May 24th through the 26th, and it's the uh, evidence-based conference um, list, or hosted by uh, Dr. Wayne Wirt and Dr. Scott Bragg um, from MUSC. Um, they put on a really, really good conference, and they have tons and tons of very uh, – skilled and seasoned clinicians coming in to talk about all kinds of different things, um, update you on everything from asthma, COPD, glaucoma, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I'm, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> I bribed enough people and they're actually going to let me get on that stage too. They're letting you do that? Oh my gosh, I know. What are they thinking? Then they're not. <laughs> and uh, I think Dr. Ward just felt bad for me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, 
I'm going to get up there and we're going to talk a little bit about staying current with uh, medication trends and things like that. So uh, I would highly appreciate anyone coming out and hanging out while we uh, get up there and spit some evidence-based medicine. It's going to be a really cool conference and um, definitely want to support it. And Dr. Uh, Bragg and Dr. Ward did a really good job and they do this every year. And so I want to hopefully uh, get them a big crowd. So if any of you guys need CEs, please come check it out. And uh, it's like a discount for students too. I think it's it's only like 150 bucks for three days, three solid days of CE. I think yeah. if you're a student, so it's pretty solid. It's pretty great. So all right, well, till next time, Cole, take it easy. You too. Podcasting world. Yep. You also take it easy. We'll see you.